For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he kept it also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received the tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in the one, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, pay tithes through Abraham, and for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, is it the people received the law, what further need would, have there, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but, the, but by the power of the undestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. From on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And, is, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who has said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the grantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We are going through our series on Ephesians called Hold Fast, and last week we talked about Christ as our anchor of our soul, and he gives us hope um, to be able to make it through this life. I have to give quite a bit of credit to Tim Keller uh, for this sermon, um, like a lot. Uh, so it was very helpful, um, and as I was um, trying to find time to prepare, um, I listened to his sermon uh, and I was like, yes, this is what we need to hear. So um, you can listen to his or you can listen to mine. But (laughs) he does a much better job. But uh, this, um, one of the things to remember about Hebrews, especially as we get into um, kind of some really meaty stuff, as the author says, there's this kind of an advanced course on um, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, especially when we read things about Melchizedek and this king and um, all the things that um, we're encountering and about to encounter as well, is to remember that this is a pastoral letter first and foremost. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to a real people with a real situation that they are facing, being a Christian in their world, was incredibly challenging, and it only increased in the challenge and the difficulty uh, that they were facing um, as they became, as Christians became more known uh, on their own religiously, when they kind of more separated themselves from historic Judaism, when they began to be um, really kind of rebelling, if you will, um, uh, just in nature of it against the emperor of Rome himself, uh, against Caesar, their life got a lot harder. I think our lives are going to get a lot harder as well. This isn't merely advice to consider, though. I think that's important to remember. This isn't some ethereal theology for us to have this mental assent to and kind of have nice thoughts about who Jesus is. This is pastoral counsel. It makes a difference how we think about who Jesus is, how we know what he has done for us, and how it applies to our lives. It is this that gives us the hope that we have for the anchor of our soul. I think it can be hard to have hope today. Uh, Just as Christians collectively, looking at um, kind of the the challenges that I think are going to just continue to come uh, for uh, our understanding of 
how we live, um, how we ask people to um, uh, worship Christ and be a part of uh, what the, the redemption that he is bringing in this world. Um, but it just feels like life is getting a lot harder individually as well. And it's hard to look at all the things that we see in our lives, um, where our marriages are, what our provision is for our life, parenting our kids. Um, it seems like they always want to act up when we need them to behave the most. Um, what our jobs look like, um, how we uh, put together our possessions and our experiences and just all of life that we face. We put our hope in these things, um, and we put our identity in them. And it seems like the more we hope in them, the less they give to us. So how do we know what to put our hope in? How do we know um, what it would look like to put our hope fully in Jesus? And I think to do that, we need to look at both what we adore and who our advocate is. I think what we adore how we understand ourselves, our identity in Christ and in our lives, um, informs us, it's kind of a gauge, if you will, um, for where our hope is. And then what would it mean for us to look at Jesus as our advocate? These are the two things that we're um, going to look at this morning. Um, adore is this really this first section um, of the passage, which I will not read it over again, but verses 1 to 10, um, as we're looking at how Abraham honored um, God. Abraham put his hope in the Most High God, and in doing so, he encountered this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek came from uh, um, Salem, or what eventually became Jerusalem, um, after Abraham had uh, won this battle between this huge battle, massive battle, he went in and he defeated um, multiple kings, and Melchizedek came to him and blessed him. And in doing so, he gave a tithe to him. He gave his possessions, a tenth of his possessions to him. And Abraham received a blessing back from him. And the author here is arguing that because Abraham gave a tenth to him, you can see that he's honoring Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God. It would have been Yahweh, the same God that Abraham worshipped, the same God that um, called Abraham from his people to go to the Promised Land. And then that blessing comes uh, back to him, so that the greater of one blesses the other, is kind of the lesser. The greater blesses the lesser. And what I'm extrapolating from here, instead of digging through kind of what um, we have here, is that we put our hope in what we adore. We put our hope in those things where we spend our money and our time. We put our hope in those things that um, we want to reflect back to us who we are. Think about how you spend your money. Think about how you spend your time. Think about your day you're weak. Who do you spend it with? What are you doing? What do you spend your money on? What do you budget for that you know you're going to spend on? What do you not budget on in going, I'm, I'm not going to have a budget for that because I just want to spend ever, however much money on that that I care to spend on as well. These are things... These are uh, that we, um, that tell us what we adore. 
uh, there's always a conversation that, that we have with um, relatives that goes something like this. Oh, we went and did this thing, fill in the blank. Oh, we would never, we, we would never spend that much money on that item or that experience, or we couldn't afford to do that thing. And Stacey and I had to step back because we were feeling really judged when we would have these conversations and then we would reflect back on when they say they go and they spend money on this thing and we're going, well, we would never spend money on that. And it's really just a different valuation. It's how we see ourselves. It's a mirror into who we are and how we want our lives to be. These mirrors show us what we adore. Our social media, what do you follow? Do you follow anything? Are you on social media? Um, maybe you don't post anything at all. Is that a point of pride for you? I'm not. I'm not. I can't be on social media. You know. Um, who do you follow? These are mirrors as well to show us what we adore. The things in which we adore are those things that we are trying to justify ourselves, trying to build up our lives to prove us. Uh, ourselves to ourselves. We need external validation to be able to know, to be able to justify, to be able to feel good about ourselves. We're good parents, so we follow parenting blogs. Um, we travel, so we follow traveling people. Uh, we're good employees, and we work hard. We have compassion. We're compassion with our kids, and so we never lose patience. We never yell at them, right? Like these are the things, and we want people to see that um, and that performance for them. Someone else to tell us that we're doing well. Um, we're generous to people around us, or we're not generous to people around us as well. We wouldn't, we wouldn't give them money. They're just going to waste it. We will give them money. We know they'll use it for a good cause or something. Here's the problem. When we're using these things as external justification and validation for who we are, looking at the things that we adore, we have good days and we have bad days. We never even fully live up to our own standard of justification and we need this external justification. Uh, I often have the thought, people see how I handled that situation so well with the kids. But when I'm not around other people, sometimes I don't think through what I'm speaking to them, how they're behaving, and how, we're how I'm uh, handling that. Or I wish I had a better response for that um, thing. Like there's that internal dialogue always telling us we did good or did bad. I hope someone noticed. I hope no one noticed that. Um, and so we need someone to tell us that we are accepted because we can't live on our own pronouncement. These things that we adore allow us to know what we are justifying ourselves with. What do you adore? No matter how hard we try, if we deny it uh, or uh, completely don't deny it, we care deeply. That's why we spend our time and our money on these things, to prove ourselves, to justify who we are in our existence. Arthur Miller is an American playwright. Um, he wrote The Crucible. He wrote The Death of a Salesman. He was married to Marilyn Monroe for a little bit, um, which was this Wikipedia told me. Um, in his play, uh, After the Fall, 
uh, character Quentin says this, For many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart, then what a good lover, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I could be justified or even condemned, a verdict either way. He says, I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. What he's saying is, as he moved and matured in his understanding that there wasn't a God, he began to see that he still had to argue and justify his existence. There is still a sense and need of external validation. Maybe he was wrong about there not being a God, because why would we continue to have to prove ourselves In other words, there's no way that we can avoid turning our life into one big trial. We have to prove ourselves. It's innate to us, whether we're good or we're bad. We can't just rest on our own evaluation. We need approval. We need justification. We need that thing that we adore to tell us that we are good. And ultimately, as Abraham needed, a word from the Most High God, the judge who sits on the throne. There's the idea that you can represent yourself in a court of law, right? And movies will tell us how um, those, those cases are won, and it's such an amazing thing. Lawyers will tell you it's never won uh, that way. Um, and so we need an advocate. We need someone who's willing to go before the throne of God, before the judgment seat, on our behalf, and give us uh, our evaluation Who is your advocate? The last part of this is telling us that Jesus stands as our priest. Uh, The author of Hebrews is recapping the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus and really kind of starting to introduce a bunch of the themes that he's just going to start ticking off of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He tells us that Jesus' role is eternal. His priestlyhood is there forever. And he argues that comes from Melchizedek. He says he made one sacrifice once for all in verse 27. He didn't need a sacrifice for himself. He was the perfect, spotless sacrifice. And it is a permanent priesthood. Jesus is our permanent advocate. I love verse 25. It says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost There is no one who can exclude themselves from the grace and mercy of God to all those who are drawing near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what he loves to do. He offered himself for our sins, for our justification, and stands at the right hand of God advocating for us. Hope comes when we accept Jesus as our advocate in this trial called life.
You know, Jesus isn't standing before God pleading to forgive us over and over and over again. We love to talk about mercy and grace that we receive, and we do, but what Jesus is offering, is asking, is for justice to be served. He, it's not this kind of endless trial of him opening a, a folder or a brief and saying, yeah, I know Sarah, I know Woody, I know Kenan and Hannah messed up again, uh, or Mark even, most especially. I know he messed up again, but he's not going to do it again. He'll get better. And then that can only lead to despair for us, that we still have to perform. But Jesus is saying that I am advocating for justice because he is our advocate. He represents us before God. See, Jesus is not merely a moral example for us to emulate. He's our advocate. He is representing uh, us asking for justice based on his performance, his payment, his sacrifice. Our justification comes because Jesus is representing us before God. And when Jesus looks at uh, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. The priests in the Old Testament would wear a jewel-laden ephod when they would go in to perform sacrifices. They would put this massive robe on that was just had all the jewels um, that were in that uh, area that that were prescribed. They were actually prescribed to be on there. Their rubies. Onyx, sapphire, and diamonds. It was woven with gold and linen thread. Just holding just a, a mere candle to it would make it sparkle and reflect and refract all kinds of light. Jesus, being our high priest, um, he is our high priest so that we know our sins have been dealt with, our ugliness, our badness, our evil thoughts but also those things which we are trying to prove ourselves, those things that we want to be seen as good in our lives. And when Jesus goes before the throne of God, he, as our high priest, he is wearing a jewel-studded ephod that is sparkling and brilliant and beautiful. Not only is Jesus our advocate, he himself is our beauty. He makes us beautiful. And Christianity isn't merely about pardon or moral example or an escape clause for the weak-minded. It's about being beautiful and living a beautiful life. Not a perfect life, not having it all together, but being beautiful in Jesus himself. This is the faith component. This is not trying to justify ourselves, but him making us beauty. Beautiful, excuse me. We are given our beauty in Jesus. What difference does this make? If Jesus is our advocate, if he is making us beautiful, what does that mean for us? Is there any application to this for our daily lives? I think there is. <laughs> I was having a conversation at the pool last night and um, talking about how... Um, uh, how all theology has to be lived out. This woman's mother was a pastor, and she would always kind of talk and tell her, you know, it needs to be this, and it needs to be, you need to be that. And, um, but it has to be able to be lived out. It means that we have a completely new identity. 
Remember that what we adore is a reflection of who we are. We can spend our time and our money on innumerable things, or we can grab a hold of Jesus and let his beauty permeate us. We can have absolute confidence in the court of the Most High God. It means we can stand before the little courts of this world as well. It means that we have complete abolition of guilt. When the slideshow of our lives begins to play in our mind of how we have messed up over and over again, or of all the good little things that we have done to try to justify ourselves, we no longer have to let it run. We don't have to stand on that justification. We can grab a hold of Jesus as our advocate, our worthiness, our beauty. It deeply undermines disappointment. It can't abolish disappointment. Disappointment, unfortunately, is a part of our lives. But our deepest ones come when we are placing our hope on something that only Jesus can give us. If he is giving us our worth, our value, um, if he is our advocate, then we can lean on him in deep moments of disappointment. I think it allows us to be more playful. Criticism becomes a joke. We don't have to defend ourselves anymore when somebody has an accusation against us. We can say, yeah, you don't, you don't even know the half of it. Yeah, um, You have no idea how deeply sinful I actually am, how messed up I am but you also don't understand how deeply loved I am either. Jesus loves me. He stands as um, my advocate before the throne of God. Humor about ourselves destroys both our pride of superiority and our self-disdain as well. It's not thinking less of ourselves. That's what humility is often understood of. It's not thinking more of ourselves. It's not placing us on the ladder with other people either. It's thinking of ourselves less. And then we have courage. When we face the storms of life, the death of ourselves, we know that we have a great high priest who is interceding for us. We can stand on him on his intercession as our advocate. In Acts 7, when Stephen is uh, about to be stoned, um, he is um, facing death, and he has a vision from heaven. And it is Jesus standing, interceding for him on his behalf before the throne of God. It gives him courage and confidence as he faces death. Jesus is able to save completely, and he lives to do this. He is the ultimate hope that we have for our lives. May we adore him as our advocate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you um, cover us with a jewel-studded ephod, with a vest that has all the beauty of the world on it, and that in that we are bound to Jesus and what he has done for us, how he saves us to the uttermost. We cannot exclude ourselves from this work of grace, and we get to stand in the confidence knowing that Jesus continues to intercede for us. He made the sacrifice. He presented himself to you 
And so we get to have that uh, for ourselves in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would have the courage, that we would have humor about ourselves, that we would be able to go out and share um, the hope that we have in you. May we uh, never be disappointed uh, by the grace and mercy that you pour out upon us. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.